Mark, get set. We're riding on the internet, cyberspace set free. Hello, virtual reality. Interactive appetite, searching for a website, a window to the world, got to get online. Take a spin, now you're in with the techno set, you're going surfing on the internet. It's the early 1990s. Internet is dial-up and slow, like walk away from your computer to wait for a page to load slow. With an email address, you can tap into 20 million other computers on a worldwide system called the Internet. You can send and receive mail to and from people all over the world. Email? I heard that's really neat. My cousin has a pen pal in Sweden and they write back and forth and it transmits right away and doesn't cost anything. Yeah. The prevailing emotion is optimism, a sense of possibility, a hint of what might be in the future. Okay, guys, the first thing that you need to know is that the Internet is amazing and it's changing every day. This clip is from an educational program aimed at kids. Once you've learned how to get online yourselves, you'll start seeing web pages everywhere. TV shows have them, schools, Disney World, even the White House. And listen, there's even an encyclopedia. Awesome. I do my shopping at home, I pay my bills. And I can learn something new. Prodigy even has a 21-volume electronic encyclopedia that's updated quarterly. All right, Prodigy. And it's around this time that advertising online begins to take shape, literally. The ads are rectangular at the top of a web page, and they stay mostly that way for decades. For better or worse. I'm Damien Bradfield, and this is Influence, a show about advertising. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And our guest today is Rick Boyce, whose work during the earliest days of digital advertising at Wired Magazine shaped the ads we still see online today. Most iconic of all being the banner ad. Rick, I don't know whether to hit you or kiss you. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, you're welcome, Damien. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So I'm going to read this quote to you, and I would love it if you would explain it back. So... Here's a quote. On the same day, the first magazine, the first automobile site, the first travel site, the first commercial consumer telephone company sites all went up online, as well as the first advertising model. The day the quote is referring to is October 27th, 1994. And the first magazine was the one you worked for, Wired. Can you explain how did Wired's advertising model trigger this one revolutionary day in internet history. Yeah, you know, what happened in the early days of uh, banner advertising, so we are talking about 25 years ago, literally October 1994, is that Hotwired, which was the online companion to Wired magazine, was the first, at least as far as I know, you know, the first ad-supported website to launch at that time. And we brought on a number of blue-chip sponsors. IBM was involved with us from day one, AT&T, MCI, Sprint, a number of other blue-chip brands. And what was really interesting was that most of those brands did not have a web presence at that time. And so by buying the ad commitment, and these ads, of course, were going to click through to someplace, it created a, a bit of a challenge for these marketers. And 
what they had to then do was to create destinations that would would make sense for a consumer audience um, who might click on the ads. And so, so really, it was the ad campaigns that drove the creation. And believe me, it was done rapidly. It's hard to even wrap your head around brands without a website. And it's wild that Wired would be responsible for creating not just their own online presence, but the first websites for their advertisers too. A few of them did have a web presence, of course. I seem to recall IBM had a presence, but it was definitely not consumer-facing, more technical and not for a consumer audience, at least at that time, of course. And so that's what really led to all of this happening, you know, all at once in a really remarkable way. When people were buying this advertising, were they buying it on Hotwired as well as placing ads in the magazine, or were they treated completely separately? Completely separately, and a number of the advertisers had been participating in the magazine, and the magazine came out in early 1993, so it preceded Hotwired by roughly a year and a half, you could say, and uh, a number of the brands uh, had been advertising in the magazine, but, but I don't believe all had. But regardless, the commitment to Hotwired was a separate deal, separate sponsorship, and it was done apart from the magazine. I mean, give us a picture, right? So you're in San Francisco? Yes. And how many people are you? Are you all in one space, different buildings? You know, when we started, what was really great when I joined Wired was we had this super cool, funky uh, space on 2nd Street, South of Market. South of Market, San Francisco, of course, now is is all built out, Salesforce Tower, and, and many, many other high-rises that obviously weren't around 25 years ago. And we were occupying this funky brick building space that had previously been occupied by Rolling Stone in the late 60s. So it had this really cool vibe and, and this really neat uh, history associated with it that you know I at least thought was pretty important. And we were probably, you know, 50, 60 people at that time. Um, you know, the magazine had been around for a year and a half, as I'd said. The online partner, if you would, of the magazine Hotwired was hiring quickly, and we had editors and other content people and producers and, and business people as well. I was the first salesperson hired to um, to specifically sell Hotwired advertising out to the broader marketplace. Was it fun? It was fabulously cool. And It was, at least for me, the first pet-friendly office I'd ever worked in. There were dogs everywhere. There were parrots, um, even more exotic pets than that. So it was a fun, cool atmosphere of, I think, the the coolest people in in media at that time who who were seeing that something really important that Wired referred to as the digital revolution was happening and that it was going to be really big and really important. So just talk us through that moment. I mean, I can, you know, I sort of have this picture in my head of the first ad being sold and a bell ringing and... You know, people throwing money around because suddenly they discovered this new gold. Did you understand how important it was going to be? Uh, I don't think, well, I mean, perhaps some people did. I'm not sure I did. You know, at the time, it's really hard to imagine, but by our best estimate at Wired at the time, there were about 25 million people globally connected to the Internet. So think about that. Think how small that number is for a second. Right. And the vast majority of the people connected to the Internet at that time, 25 years ago, were connected via the online services like AOL, Prodigy, and CompuServe. Yeah, I can remember the TV ads for those online services at the time. They were all basically just enthusiastic explanations for what kind of things people could do on the internet. 
There has never been a better time to get online. The easiest just got easier. Instant messages. I can customize my email. My niece sent me a picture. If you have a phone line, you can be online. America Online. Prodigy makes your PC a powerful tool. And listen, there's even an encyclopedia. Awesome. I do my shopping at home. I pay my bills. And I can learn something new. Prodigy even has a 21-volume electronic encyclopedia that's updated quarterly. All right. Prodigy. In stores everywhere. So the, the World Wide Web which really had just come about and, and really become more accessible because of the first web browser, Mosaic, which was launched in late 1993. You know, maybe there were 5 to 10 million people who were truly, you know, using a web browser to access the Internet. And where would they have been? Are we talking about Americans? You think oh, this would have been global? Global. You know, there were no comm scores or anyone measuring audiences mm -hmm. at that time. But this was the best of our estimate. And we felt that there were about 25 million people globally online and maybe 5 to 10 million who were actually on the World Wide Web using a web browser. So it right. was so limited. I mean, there were so few people online at that time. It was hard uh, to imagine how, you know, how significant this would all become, you know, in the years that followed, at least for me. And who was the first customer? Yeah. The, the very first insertion order, and I remember this well because of the date, it was signed on April 15th, 1993. And I remember that because, of course, that's tax day here in America. And that was AT&T. And that was the very first insertion order that was signed. I joined uh, many months after that, so I wasn't present in, at that particular time. But when we launched in October, we had 12 sponsors signed up and who launched with us when we went live on October 27th. What were they actually running on these banner ads? Most of them were pretty simple. I would give the advertisers a ton of credit. I think at that time, they were following some of the rules that, that we think of typically are associated with outdoor advertising with, you know, seven or fewer words, you know, large type and try to make things readable, legible and easy to understand with a brief message. Bright colors seemed to be the norm. And those were pretty attention getting. And, and it also made sense within the wired context because, of course, bright and fluorescent colors were, were an important part of our brand. And who... And why was it decided to be that, that particular size? Because, I mean, maybe the dimensions have changed slightly, but it's not like the dimensions have changed that much. I mean, we still talk about banners and skyscrapers and these sort of formats that basically fit around the pages. Yeah, the, I mean, the decision-making preceded my joining there in terms of the, the actual dimensions, but it was really driven by bandwidth and bandwidth limitations. And again, this is one of those things that's hard to imagine as we enjoy the modern internet. But 25 years ago, most of the people connecting to the internet were connecting via modems, which are a slow connection. Dial-up. Dial-up, exactly. Uh, broadband was confined to universities and some companies, and it was super expensive. And what sort of connection speeds are we talking about? Because now, I mean, you know, people will complain now getting 25 megasecond saying that that's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, I do. When, when we launched, the, the most common um, modem speed was 14.4. So that's, um, you know, 14,400 kilobits. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, within a short period of time, that was doubled to 28.8. And then, you know, maybe a year later, the norm was 56K. But even right. at 56K, the internet was a, was a challenging experience. And what I mean by that is there was a lot of attention paid to the banner sizes because we didn't want to make the pages too slow. You know, right. back in that day, 
people would talk about a web page painting. Like that was the verb they would use. Like it didn't load, it kind of <laughs> painted. You might recall that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And literally it would kind of paint from top to bottom and eventually your yeah. screen would fill with the colors and the images visible through the browser. But that is very specifically why banners at that time were fairly limited in size. We just didn't want to add too much to the load times, which were already challenging for people. It's interesting, right? Because you've got a magazine. So we're, you know, 25 years ago, you're in San Francisco in this super cool building, dogs running around everywhere. You could have chosen to have a subscription or to have people pay for the online version of this magazine too, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely could have done that. But? But I think the, the feeling at the time was that, you know, people were already paying for internet access. And we wanted to expose this content to the broadest audience possible. So you were selling advertising and you come home and you say, I'm, I'm going to go and do something different. I've got this idea to sell banner ads on dial-up internet. I think this is going to be interesting. What was that conversation like? <laughs> yeah, my wife initially did not love that idea. And I had, a, I had a great job at an advertising agency and was successful there, worked on great clients, had a great team. But shortly before I joined Hotwired, so I would say early 94, I had first been exposed to the World Wide Web. And I'd kind of made a mental note at that point that, you know, there's something really important happening here. A new medium is being born. And it appears that San Francisco may very well be the epicenter of where this happens. And so I kind of made a, a promise to myself that if I saw a cool opportunity to uh, join the World Wide Web revolution or whatever it was, that I would hop on board. So it wasn't that many months later when I had that opportunity. I can imagine it being quite exciting. I can also imagine it being quite daunting, much the same way when I told my wife that I was going to leave everything and do we transfer. Right. She also thought, right. oh my God, really? <laughs> yeah. It's a free file transfer service. What are you going to do with that? Something I think you said earlier on, which I think is also incredibly important to understand in this context, is it's not only that you've got an internet that's incredibly immature where you know, you're really trying to pioneer how you're going to pay for these 60 people you've got sitting in this expensive piece of real estate in San Francisco. But you've also got to figure out how you're going to help these companies actually now build out a digital web presence, right? What's the point of having a banner right. if you haven't got a website? Right, right. We were very fortunate that in our building where, um, where Hotwired was headquartered, Right upstairs was a really cool web development company that was way ahead of their time called Organic Online. A separate company, but total friends and family with Hotwired and, and Wired. And you know, we shared bandwidth, we shared some employees, in fact. And so once it became clear that a number of our advertisers were going to want to develop out, we're going to need to, let's face it, there they was a requirement to build out a consumer-facing web presence. We were so fortunate that our friends at Organic Online were right there, and uh, they were able to pick up a bunch of those accounts and really were key to getting a number of those sites built and launched simultaneously with the Hotwired website. I, th I think this is amazing. I can't picture um, myself doing this back then, to be honest. I, think, I take my hat off to you for doing it. <laughs> uh, thank you. It was fun. We were having so much fun. Yeah, that's cool, right? I think that's an important part of it. I mean, advertising, I, did, I do think, used to be fun. Yeah. I'm not sure if anybody's having fun today, but tell me how much fun there was in making up the pricing, because obviously the price of a banner was 
completely fictitious and based on nothing. So you must have had quite a laugh deciding what you were going to charge these people. Most of our sponsors were were major national, if not international, brands, and there was no impression guarantee. We weren't talking about CPMs or cost per thousand. It was simply a flat rate. It was $30,000 for a 12-week sponsorship. And I think that the price point was pretty sweet because it helped us achieve the revenue targets that we needed to achieve and needed to show to our investors. But it also was small enough that it was a fairly easy yes for most of these marketers. But also, as it turns out, it was a fabulous PR coup for most of those sponsors as well. There was a lot of publicity surrounding this. Most of them really enjoyed participating in that. Most of them. So who didn't? We had a couple of smaller companies that were fairly regional. It didn't hurt them, but I don't think it was that exciting for them because outside of their trading area, few would have heard of them. And where did you go from there? So, I mean, it's it's clearly working. It's exciting. It's, it's successful. What was the next sort of phase in the history of Hotwide's banner ad business? Our rates went from uh, 30000 for a 12-week sponsorship to 45000 So we actually increased them 50%. And again, we continued to have high demand. There wasn't real pushback against that. I think the price point seemed fair and reasonable to everybody involved. So we were just carrying on. But that year, 1995, became a really interesting one because that was the first time that we started to see competition in the marketplace. And of course, we had really none in 1994. But in 95, uh, what happened was the search engines started coming online with their own advertising models. And those were certainly a challenge for us. Search engines, and, and at the time, let's, these were Excite, Lycos, InfoSeek, and certainly Yahoo was around at the time. They didn't start selling advertising until quite a bit later in 1995. But no Google, no Firefox, none of those, none of the big players. No. I mean, none of them actually exist anymore today, right? None of those. You know, the search engines came on board, and the first was um, was InfoSeek. And I met with some of their executives early in 95, and they shared with me what they were going to do, and it was pretty pretty interesting to me. They were going to sell keyword-targeted banner ads, and I'd never heard of this concept before, but their idea was that they would target ads specifically to someone's keyword or phrase that they searched and so deliver this, you know, really compelling level of targeting that really hadn't occurred to me before and certainly would have been brand new in the marketplace. They were also going to sell what they referred to as run-of-site advertising. So these would be non-targeted banner ads that would just, you know, appear randomly on search terms that, that perhaps hadn't been purchased by an advertiser that wanted the targeted search term. They also mm -hmm. uh, mentioned that they were going to charge CPMs of $50 for keyword-targeted ads and $20 for their run-of-site ads. So that was the first time as well that an internet publisher or, or an ad-supported website was talking in terms of CPMs. So your competition wasn't other publishers. The competition was browsers. Search engine, certainly. Um, as I saw it at first, there were other, you know, there were other publishers, but there weren't many. So not even the newspapers. The newspapers at this point aren't online. I don't think so. No New York Times... No Los Angeles Times no, Chronicle. I don't think so. Uh, amazing, right? You know, I wasn't a big, big online services user at that time, but I know that AOL and Prodigy and, and CompuServe, which are the major online services, had a number of publications within their walled gardens, if you would. But I do think that a mm -hmm. number of those uh, content producers were 
probably a little slow to come to the web. They were had invested significantly in these walled gardens, these these online services. And so I think that they were probably somewhat content with that. And it, was, it still wasn't clear quite what was going to happen with the web either. It was still so early and so fresh. I think everybody, marketers and, and certainly content producers, were all trying to kind of figure out how to best navigate this thing. 1995, you're doing really well. Right. What was next on the agenda for Hotwired or for you personally? Maybe you were thinking about going to a search engine. Yeah, well, it's funny you should mention that because certainly it was by early uh, 95 that I was having very detailed and frequent conversations with our CEO and our founders about getting into the search engine business. And I felt that, um, you know, content sites certainly were interesting, but What it appeared was most interesting on the internet at that time, and I think still true today, is to assist people in discovery. And people were online to discover something that was of particular interest to them. And search engines were a terrific way, obviously, to navigate that and, and to find what you were looking for. I have pretty fond memories of all those earnest internet explainers that came out at the time. Take a spin, now you're in with the techno set. You're going surfing on the internet. We installed the internet on our computer just a short time ago, and I haven't been able to get the kids off it ever since. Their curiosity for learning has skyrocketed. Peter is constantly quoting sports statistics, and he can tell you the best surfing spots around the globe. <laughs> There was so much optimism. It's hard to grasp just how much this opened up the internet for users. Okay, so what did Wired want to do with search? We began talking to a number of companies out in the marketplace that were building search technologies that we could potentially partner with. In June of 1996, so this was you know a couple years later at this point, we actually launched Hotbot. Um, and Hotbot at that time, by late 96, early 97, was definitely recognized as the number one search engine in the world, was winning all kinds of awards, et cetera. I wanted to read something that I got here and then jump to closer to present day. Okay. So it says, the results of Hotwired's early decisions, some merrily ad hoc, many long considered and agonized over, are all over the web and probably will be for years. This is not because the founders necessarily came up with the right answers. It's rather because they came up with the first ones. They created precedents that quickly became industry practice. It is quite funny how so much of this is just because of the way it was and the tools and the limitations that you had back, you know, 25 years ago, that, you know, we're still basically using the same tools today. I mean, you know, newspapers that have millions of readers are using the format that your funky little company in San Francisco invented 25 years ago. And we're still even referring to them as the same thing. I mean, not, not the impression part, but the banner. I think it's amazing that it still hasn't evolved. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. And I think it's amazing that it hasn't evolved given the reason it came about in the first place, as we talked about, and that the dimensions were, were limited yeah. and the file sizes were limited were because of bandwidth at the time, which was super restricted. Like bandwidth was this this commodity that was hard to get and expensive to get and therefore um, yeah. dictated a lot of what web pages needed to look like 25 years ago. That's no longer the case. We have near universal broadband, oftentimes even on our phones, but yet banner ads are still fairly small, in my opinion. And, you know, that limitation, I believe, is unfortunate. I think, you know, we, we never have given 
uh, creative teams a lot of real estate to work with uh, with banner ads, and that was true then, and, and is still true today. And I think that is a unfortunate result of that. You know, shortly after we launched, Yahoo came online in, in November of 1995 with their ad model. And it wasn't long after that, uh, it was probably late 95, maybe very early uh, 96, that the Internet Advertising Bureau, the IAB, was formed. And that's still the industry group, although the name has changed from Internet to Interactive Advertising Bureau. But, but regardless, IAB is still the industry group, which, you know, most, if not all major web publishers are partnered with. And, you know, the IAB um, at that time uh, established the banner standards that we still use today. So Hotwired's didn't end up being the dimension that ultimately won. It was actually Yahoo's dimension that ended up being the one that was chosen for those kind of standard, the standard banners that we all think of. You know, it was a standard then and, and it's a standard still now 25 years later. So when did the next version come along? It wasn't until early, the early 2000s that the next generation of banner ads were introduced. So you talk about things like the medium rectangle and the skyscraper and these larger configurations. Those came along and that was driven by the IAB in the early 2000s. But but really since those were added um, back then, so, you know, 01, 02, let's say, you know, nothing has really changed in terms of banner dimension since then. A very important question to ask is, did anybody back then actually like banner ads? Did anyone like them? I th- so, I mean, of the of the users, was there research around, you know, whether people actually appreciated banner advertising? My theory is today, no one has ever said, I love a banner ad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're perhaps right. I think that, you know, a couple of interesting things about the, the early banner ads is that we did, we did track click rates and... Click rates on the early banners were incredibly high. And by incredibly high, I mean mm-hmm. up to 50%. So up to 50% of the, you know, the banners that would load great, on these right? sponsored pages, up to 50% of those loads would result in a click-through, which was obviously quite remarkable. And that did persist for some, for some time. So there was a lot of that initially, obviously driven by curiosity. And we did a number of things first at Hotwired. And one of the things we did first that kind of gets lost in all of the Hotwired history is we did the first... Um, advertising brand effectiveness study. So we actually conducted a study in uh, a little bit more than a year after we launched to understand uh, the impact of a banner ad exposure on an audience. And it was set up in a standard test control type methodology. You know, your question was about, did people like banner ads? I don't know the answer to that question, but I can tell you that from the very first ad effectiveness study that we did in late 95, what we did find is that they were effective at uh, creating awareness, memorability, brand recall, and, and a number of these characteristics that advertisers, importantly, do, uh, do track. And totally logical, right? I mean, so I, for maybe those listeners that don't know what a good click-through rate is today, but people will get very excited about 0.014% click-through rate. And you're talking about 50%. When we first launched We Transfer, we had no banner ads. We just always had one full screen ad in the background and we were getting something like 6%. Mm. But this is 2009, obviously not 1994. So yeah, I mean, if you're getting 50% click-through rate, I would imagine that the awareness and the effectiveness would be, would be super high. Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
And that was, if you think about it at that time, because, you know, bandwidth was limited. Most people's connection was slow. Like clicking on a banner was a big commitment. Like you were going to go, you yeah, know, really, yeah. you were going to go load a, a new page of something and uh, and that was going to take a while. So it was a kind of... It might take an hour. Yeah, right. It might take an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think, uh, you know, all this work at Hotwired has meant for the internet today? Should people love you yeah. and thank you or should they hate you for yeah, what you Yeah, well, I think both. And I, and I, and I, I don't blame... And I feel the same no, way. I don't think anyone should hate you. I feel... I'm, I'm joking. Sorry, that's not a fair question. So what I find is particularly on my smartphone when I'm navigating web pages and there's just overexposure to ad units and pop-ups and video screens and these things, there's definitely a lot of abuse that goes on. I think a lot of publishers are just pushing too far uh, to monetize you know, every page view with too many ad units. So that's obnoxious, let's face it. That's just a bad experience. But I think that the really, really interesting evolution with banner advertising is what's been done with data and the fact that in many ways, uh, banner advertising, even more so than search, is the most targeted media form available anywhere across any medium. And that's because the cookie data mm -hmm. is so rich. And so what data companies have been able to do with real-time bidding and, and various, you know, kind of on-demand platforms is create these, you know, super targeted uh, campaigns for advertisers that get, you know, literally right at the cookie profile that's most important to that particular brand or, or marketer. This cookie data is how your delivered ads that align with your interests. Yeah. So I'm really, you know, continue to be excited about, you know, those developments. And I think that's getting marketers something that's, that's really special and really unique. I've got to say though, I love the simplicity of Hotwire's first banner ads that are just static, dumb, simple, Yes. $30,000, take it or leave it. <laughs> I love that yeah. approach. So Rick, my, my final question to you is knowing what you created or helped create, knowing what you've, you've been involved with and knowing what the internet, you know, is and represents today, do you use ad blockers? Yeah, I do not use ad blockers. And, and in fact, I, I teach and, and mentor at a communications college where there's a number of advertising students. And I, all, I tell all of them that they're not allowed to use ad blockers, at least when I'm around, because I think that for those of us that are you know, industry professionals and industry practitioners, it's really important that you know, we're exposed to the medium you know, that we participate in and, and in my case that help create. So yeah, no ad blockers. I do click on ads if they're well-targeted and I'm seeing better and better targeting as time goes on. So I, I do feel like, you know, that's been a huge saving grace really for banners has been this data. So I do, I do absolutely click on them and sometimes I click and actually buy stuff. So that's a click conversion um, in industry jargon. <laughs> so, so do you have a favorite ad? Could you be the one man that I've ever met that has a favorite banner ad? Oh, favorite, my favorite banner ad. Let's see. Um, what have I seen? What have I seen recently? You know, I spend a lot of time on the New York Times app, and I actually think their banner ads and the presentation of their banner ads is so well done. It's so tasteful, not overly, you know, not overly cluttered. Rick, thank you very much. I think it's been a fascinating however long it's been and going back to the early days of Wired and Hot Wired. I really appreciate it. I thought it was a very cool conversation. You're welcome. Thank you. And that's our episode today. A big, persistent thank you banner ad to Rick Boyce for opening the vault and sharing his stories from the days of early internet advertising. Influence is hosted by me, Damien Bradfield. Our producer is Rachel Swaby. Our Supervising producer is John Asante, 
and our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Influence is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. Reviews help spread the word, as I know from my book, The Trust Manifesto, which also lives and dies by reviews. You can follow me on Twitter at DJ Bradfield. Influence is a podcast from We Transfer, produced in association with Neon Hum Media. Here's a cookie. Thank you so much for listening. This episode of Influence is brought to you by Nitwit, private tutors, teaching adults all about TikTok. Now, I'm joined by Matt, who heads up our sales team, who has had the privilege of working with Nitwit for a couple of weeks now. Matt, how did it feel? Did you, are you now a TikTok pro? You know what, Damien? Uh, Nitwit really took all the, the wonder and, and, and what I was fearing from the youth and put it into my fingertips. So, you know, I'm a hip dad. I'm on the gram. Um, I know I know what the trends are, but this this TikTok really was overwhelming for me because, you know, there's there's music and there's lip syncing and there's trends and there's so much to it. Nitwit really simplified it for me. What does it cost, Matt? Another subscription service? It's, it is another subscription service, but right now they're doing $25 a month for every session that they come over for 15 minutes. Wow, I mean, I've got two kids. I think I could benefit from this. This sounds amazing. They come to your house? Yeah, they come directly to your house. Um, okay. They, they, they lip sync their way right through the door. And do you get to learn some moves? I mean, I heard that TikTok is all about dancing. Absolutely. So an additional uh, $25 a service, they'll actually teach you a bit in a, in, a, in, a, in a skit that goes with your nitwit consultation. And are you not concerned that they make me make you out to look like a bit of a loser? No, not at all. These are all personalized private tutors coming up with the most creative, original, different types of lessons for you to learn on TikTok so that you're, you know, really becoming viral within, I'd say, minutes. My cloud's gone up incredibly. I think I need that. Yeah. It's right as nitwit.com. Oh, no, it's nitwit.net slash uh, semicolon TikTok slash nitwit.com. Amazing. And if you mention influence, what was the discount again? Um, you get uh, one free session that lasts five and a half minutes. And that can really get you started. So it goes a long way. Nitwit, be a cool dad. <laughs>